Well, good morning. This time I'd like to invite Mark Duncan to come finish that good sermon. <laughs> that was great, man. I felt the spirit speaking right through you. Thanks for that introduction. And thanks to Alan and Katie. Really appreciate your testimony. Are you sure it wasn't two years ago when you met? Because I was there, I remember. It doesn't seem that long ago. Praise God. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us as we will be in Romans 7 today. Romans 7. Let me just pray briefly. God, be with your people. We do love you. Now we want to receive your word in worship. Open our hearts and lighten our eyes to see Jesus. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I am fresh off and have survived the TCC Men's Campout Weekend. Yeah, some of you guys were there with me. We had a blast here. We did sleeping and not sleeping on the ground or swinging between trees. That was a good time. We hiked up to the river and back. Dad jokes were flying everywhere. It was a good, good time to be together with the brothers. We did something I could never do at home, which is have seconds, thirds, or fourths on bacon. And that was a good part, and we had a great old time. Uh, more seriously, though, we had a great time of prayer with one another, intentional conversations, um, preaching and talking about God's Word. It was just a sweet time to be with the guys. I'm so thankful we got to do that last, last weekend. While I was there, I did meet an old acquaintance. It is my personal nemesis, Cornhole. <laughs> Cornhole, you might know him. He and I have a bit of a love-hate relationship. You see, uh, we didn't have Cornhole when I grew up. I don't own a Cornhole set. Uh, I don't have fancy techniques when I play Cornhole, but I've always been intrigued by it because it's a one-on-one type of battle. There's some strategy there, and it's so simple, and yet it's such a fun game. And I remember as I started playing cornhole here at the TCC Men's Retreat, something that I'd forgotten. When you get up to throw cornhole or toss the bag, it is just you and the board, right? Um, unlike other games or sports, there's no coach to blame it on if you're out of position. There's not that. There's no referee to blame if you make a mistake. I found that out. It's on you. There's not such a thing as lockdown cornhole defense. That doesn't exist. And as I was throwing, I noticed that some of my throws would kind of bounce up to the board, skid across the grass, well, that's no good. And then some of them would hit the board and slide off. And then some of them would just go way, way right. <laughs> Nothing. And I found that when it comes to cornhole, the problem is only me. And that's going to be the point. As Paul speaks today from God's word about your relationship to God, he's going to give us a hard truth today. And the truth is, you are the problem. When it comes to you and God, Paul says the problem is you 
and only you. We're in our series entitled, For the Love of God. We're going through the entire book of Romans here. And Paul wants you to know that as you struggle following God, the problem's not with his communication. The problem's not with God's will or God's law. We have to take ownership when we struggle. Paul is going to say, we have evil within us. But take hope. When you hear this, I don't want you to be hopeless. Because that's not what God has for you. He wants you to, to notice that if the problem in your relationship with God lies within you, then you're not expected to fix it. All right? He doesn't expect you to be the foil to your own evil. The good news today is God can solve our issues of evil and sin, of pride and lust and jealousy, all of those, the solution comes from outside of ourselves, And that is really, really good news. You don't have to provide the answer. The solution is given to you in Jesus Christ. So I'm assuming that you arrived here today with an imperfect relationship with God. Some things are just messed up in all of us. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're just checking this Jesus thing out, you have to admit some things in your life are messed up. Maybe you're overwhelmed with guilt from the past. Maybe you're trying to live for God and you just keep falling short. If that's, if that's you today, then this text, this sermon is for you because only the strong arms of Jesus are stout enough to carry the weight of all of your junk. And that's God's message to you today in Jesus Christ. The great commentator Matthew Henry said it like this. It's a special remedy against fears and sorrows to be much in praise of Jesus. Many a poor drooping soul hath found its soul. So that might be you here today. You might be a poor drooping soul. God wants you to know you don't have to rescue yourself. Jesus is the rescuer. So in hope, let's grip the shield of faith and turn and look at Romans 7 together. Chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Paul is going to share how his desires for God are often derailed by sin. If you're taking notes, that's the first point. Derailed by sin. And Paul's going to give his testimony here. And it may be different than the testimony you learned to give in youth group or college. When I learned to give my testimony, it was all about, I used to be bad and do these things. And then I found Jesus and I changed. And now I don't do those things. Well, Paul, he certainly had that type of testimony. But he has also a great testimony, too. Where he also says, there are moments when I continue to be overwhelmed by my own sinfulness. There are times when I'm still in a battle and sometimes I lose. That's the testimony he's going to give us today. It might sound familiar. Let's look at it. Verse 21 here. Paul says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Might have a familiar ring to it. 
A little later, we're going to find out what Paul means when he says evil lies close at hand. In verse 23 here, he explains, he's going to say it twice, that he has evil in my members. That's how he says it. What does that mean? It's, it's just all up in it. His sinfulness is contaminated him. And he realizes it. And that's a part of his acting testimony. I know in my mind I should be following God, but when I try to, something else is at work. It's fighting against me. There's another part of me that just doesn't want to. There's a part of me that just only wants to serve myself. There's inner turmoil, anguish, struggle. Very real text. And the next two verses further explain Paul's inner struggle here. Verse 22. He says, For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. This is the first half of Paul, so to speak. He really wants to serve God. He's not out there looking for trouble. He sincerely loves God's word. He wants to please God. 23 says, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. Here's the situation. Paul has come to love God's word, God's law so much that he can say, that's the law of my mind. That's how I set my mind. It's on God's way. It's on God's will. That's what I want to do. And when I'm trying my own business to follow God's law, up comes another law. And he's strutting towards me. And he's not wanting to shake hands. He's here for battle. He's here for war waging. He's here for conflict. And that is the law of sin and death that is within his own heart. Imagine that in your mind. This epic conflict. Trying to do good. And then, oh, there's something in me that's pulling me away. That's what Paul is talking about here in Romans What's the result? Look in verse 23. It's making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my member. What's that mean? Sometimes I lose. I lose the fight against sin. I give in. I get beaten. I want to go God's way. But I fail. His plans are perfectly following God. You ever do that? Sometimes I wake up in the morning and I say, today is my perfect day. I'm going to do it. I'm going to score 100. I'm going to follow God completely. And then comes breakfast, right? It, doesn't last, it never lasts very long. And Paul is being honest about it here, and he's saying the same thing. We see this with other brothers in the Scriptures. Remember the story of Abraham? You know that Abram was 75 years old when he answered God's call. Remember his story? God came to him. He's living way over here, and God says, I'm choosing you, and I want you to follow me. He's not a 20-year-old still finding himself. That's not who he is. He's 75, and he leaves everything, and he follows God. Here's the guy who genuinely is trusting God. He wants to follow God, and what happens? Well, there's a famine, and he has to go through Egypt. Remember that story? The Bible says he's there with his wife, and you can see him turning to her one day, and he says this. He says, you know what? You're pretty. That's a good start, I think. Was there, but I can, I can imagine her looking at him thinking, ah, what's coming next? He said, you're, you're so pretty 
But I think when we get to Egypt, all those Egyptian guys are going to want to marry you. She's probably thinking, this is not going in a good direction. And here's Abram, a man who wants to follow God. What's his big solution? Hey, why don't we lie? You just say you're my sister. And the Bible says, he says, say you're my sister so it will go well with me. And she goes along with his prominent idea and she takes part in this lie and they get to Egypt and Pharaoh sees her. He wants to marry her. He does marry her, even though she's already married to Abram. And God sends plagues upon his house. Pharaoh's no dummy, it turns out. He goes, he hunts down Abram, he confronts him. And listen to what the Bible says. Pharaoh says that Abram, this man following God, he says, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? Why? Because evil lies close at hand what Paul teaches us here today. Lest we think this is an Old Testament thing, we also see it in the life of Peter. Remember, thankfully, Jesus was talking on his last night to his disciples. He said, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me. He was talking about Judas. But Peter's going to make a point, and he stands up, and he says, well, I'll lay my life down for you. It won't be me. I'll lay my life down. I think he meant it. I think Peter was trying to follow Jesus. And what happened? He's doing fine until he meets a little teenage girl. And he gets scared. He gets squeezed. And let's see what comes out. She says, aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his friends? He says, I am not. Three times before the night is over. He has a chance to follow God, follow Jesus Christ. And he says, I am not. What a way to say it. Here's Jesus who had taught Peter. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the life. I am the good shepherd. I am, says Jesus, and no worse way for Peter to distance himself from Jesus by saying, I am not Jesus' follower. Why do you do that? Evil is close at hand. Paul writes about this in other passages. He writes this in Galatians 5, 17. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Whether he's talking about being fleshly or wretchedness, the same concept. There's a war within us. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. What you want to do is follow God. You're being opposed by the desires of your flesh, your innate sinfulness. And you know, I don't have to describe to you what this inner temptation feels like. You know what it feels like. In a philosophical vein, author Cornelius Plain. Plantica compares our indwelling sin to a parasite. Listen to how he says it. Sin is an uninvited guest that keeps tapping its host for sustenance. Nothing about sin is its own. All its power, 
and persistence and plausibility are stolen goods. Sin is not really an entity, but a spoiler of entities. Not an organism, but a leech on organisms. Sin does not build shalom or peace. It vandalizes it. My question to you this morning is, what do you do when you feel this way? When you feel beaten down by Paul in his testimony, there are times when I am just overcome by sin. There's power within me wins. It captivates me. What do you do then? You feel like you want to please God, but you have this leech of sin sucking the life out of your spiritual self. What do you do? It's vandalizing your obedience. Maybe you don't want to yell at your kids, but you just can't help yourself. That's not just an expression. You can't help yourself. You know God doesn't want you to look at that image on your phone, but you desire it. On one hand, you don't, but on the other hand, man, you desire it. There's a battle within you. You're definitely trying to dwell on the things of God throughout your day, but you're often gripped by your desire. I want a house like that woman. I want that house. And I went to buy a car, and I tell you, Two of my friends in my neighborhood end up with the very truck that I was thinking about. I didn't buy it. I bought a little car. You know, got a little Toyota. But my friend drove up and he said, this is my dream truck. Come and join it with me. And I'm thinking, I want that truck. That's not a godly desire. I shouldn't be envying his truck. I should be happy for him. I want a car like that. Maybe you want a husband like that. Maybe you even want that husband. That's what happens with our sinful desires. So when you find that in everyday living, you see evil close at hand like Paul, God has something for you here in this text. Let's keep on reading. Let's look at verse 24. This is Paul's response to his own sin that lurks within, okay? I'm going to call this desperate for help. If you're taking notes, desperate for help. Verse 24, let's read this. You have to read this verse a certain way, I think. Because of the turn. Because of the pronunciation here. The punctuation. Paul says, wretched man that I am. Oh, I hate this about myself. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now I want you to notice a few things about this verse, verse 24. They can help you understand your own struggles with sin. Here we go. First off, he is brutally honest about where the trouble lies. Okay? He's not messing around here. Like me playing cornhole, he knows he is the problem. If you want to have rescue from sin, you must be able to admit. When it comes to you and your relationship with God, you're the problem. But also, don't miss what he does not say. Okay, let's look at what he does not say for a moment. He does not say, 
All that I am is a wretched man. He doesn't say that. That would be a different statement, right? One reason he doesn't say that is because Paul knows that we are all created in God's image. Whether you're a follower of Jesus here today or not, God created you, which means his fingerprints are all over you, which means you have value. See, Paul can hold these two things in tension. I was made by God. I'm in the image of God. I'm created by him. There's a part of me that's glorious just because I reflect God. And then there's a part of me that's wretched because I rebel against it. Don't go messing around in your sin unless you're ready to hold both of these things together, right? Because if you just look at your sin and forget that you're made in God's image, you will be hopeless. You will crash. That's why when I look at my sin, it's a dark place. I'm tempted to go to a very, very dark place. I don't like to do it. But then I remember, oh, God made me. God created me. I am made for him. I'm reflecting him, God's image. Paul doesn't deny this when he goes into a deep dive about his own wretchedness. Neither should you. Awesome. We've got to answer this question. What does it mean to be wretched and a Christian? All right? Because Paul is not denying his Christianity when he says, I am wretched. What, what does that mean? As he says in the above verse, verse 14, what does it mean to be fleshly and yet a follower of Jesus? It sounds so bad when he talks about himself that he might be thinking, how can that be a Christian? How can that be somebody who says he's a slave to sin and also filled with God's spirit? How can that be? Well, we have to be able to make a distinction here. Professor Will Timmons, the New Testament professor, he's very helpful. Listen to what he says here. There's a vital distinction. Being a slave, Paul says, I'm a slave to sin. What does he mean? Well, being a slave is fundamentally an issue of personal identity. It answers the question, whose am I? Being fleshly is fundamentally an issue of personal capacity. It's, it's answering the question, what am I like? Right? Paul isn't saying he's a slave to sin in such a way that he's contradicting what he said in verse, uh, chapter 6. We read through chapter 6. He says the believer has freedom because we have a union with Christ and his death and his resurrection. But our bodies, here's the key, our bodies don't yet share in Christ's risen life. Our souls do, but our bodies don't, including all of your desires and your thoughts. They don't yet fully share in Christ's resurrection life. So there's still slavery inside of you because you are not yet perfected. We're awaiting the redemption of our bodies. That's why Paul can say, I'm fleshly and wretched and not being in denial of the Spirit's work inside of him. That's how you work it out. Because I know if you're like me, sometimes when you're tempted with sin, it starts to stumble forward. You're like, am I even a Christian? How can this be? How can I think this thought and even be born again, right? We have these thoughts. It's because not all of you is yet participating in the resurrection life of Jesus. Some of it's future. So we're stuck with a sin nature. Something else we must note from this verse. I'll read it again. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me 
from this body of death, we want to note how Paul looks for the answer outside of himself. He's looking ahead, knowing someone's got to deliver me. It's not going to be myself. It's got to be someone outside of myself that provides the delivery. There are two hands he's holding here. This is a bilateral thought he's having. Wretched man that I am, and the key to the gospel, wretched man that I am means you're the problem. Who will deliver me? Who's going to deliver me? That means there's another solution outside myself. We must be able to hold those two together when we're fighting our own sin. Also, this is very interesting. It's worth noting that when Paul is presenting the gospel, his own testimony, he's going to say it in such a way that it bumps against many prevailing views in our culture, right? I was reading through this article this week by a guy named Tom Edsel, and he wrote a column in the New York Times. Someone shared it to me, and I, I read it. And he was talking about how people on the conservative political and social spectrum of things saw life and experienced life completely different than the people on the liberal social and political spectrum of things, right? He's not condemning either one. He's just saying people experience life differently compared to their social and political views. And it dawned on me as I was reading this text, you're probably on the spectrum in one of those two camps, either more progressive or more conservative. If you are, the gospel is going to be harder at certain points because of where you stand. For instance, if you tend to see the world through a more progressive lens, you're going to be tempted when you come up against the gospel to only locate evil outside yourself in social systems or political forces or those in power. You might be tempted to locate evil only in your personal background, your birth order or something like that. Now listen, these things can be formative. They can be hurtful. They can be harmful, destructive, and they're a very real part of our broken world. But today, in this part of the gospel, God is calling you to look at the evil inside of yourself, your own personal rebellion against God. At the level of your deepest desire, you're the problem. You're not the only problem, but you are the problem. It might be hard to see if you tend to view the world a little bit more aggressively. Also, if you tend to view the world more conservatively, this is going to be hard for you. When you get to verse 24, you're going to love that first part, probably. Oh, wretched man that I am. Why? Because if you view things more conservatively, you're going to love the idea of personal responsibility. That's a big deal to you. But crying for deliverance outside yourself, that's probably not your thing. If you're a conservative, social, political, you probably don't like being delivered in any area of your life. I like independence. Get your hands off the stuff. Thank you very much. That's just how you're prone. The part of the gospel that's going to be hard for you is you're going to be tempted to work your way into squareness to God. You're going to say, I'm, I can do enough holy deeds. It's all about working hard here. Then an equitable God has to reward me for all the work I've done. That's just how things work. That's not the gospel. It's not as if enough moral elbow grease is going to wash yourself clean. It's not what Paul's saying. 
only Jesus can fix you. You can see how, however you view the world, the gospel is going to push up against your worldview a little bit. Paul is aware of that. And Paul gives you Jesus. Look finally here. The last thing I want to say. I'm going to call it delivered by Jesus if you're taking notes. Most of this text up to this point has been bad news. You can be captive to sin at some time. Evil lies close at hand. Even in your own heart. You are the problem. That's not so encouraging, right? I'm thankful Paul kept writing. Paul doesn't stop writing. He keeps on writing. And that's exactly the way you should attack your own sin. Don't get too far drawn into dwelling on it. Keep on moving to Jesus, and that's what Paul does here. Why does he do it this way? I think he does it because he's friends with the solution. To Paul, Jesus is not just abstract. He knows personally the solution to his own problem, so he can run through, be honest about the sin, and run to Jesus. Look what he says here. If I were writing this, I'd get an evil heart. Nastiness is close at hand. You're wretched. You can be a slave to sin at times. The next thing I would write is about my own despair, right? Ugh, this is hopeless. That's not where he goes. Listen to what he does. He goes into thankfulness. Verse 24. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? I got a problem that's inside of me. I can't fix it myself. I have to be delivered from outside. And I'm thankful for that. That's good news. Because God is doing it through Jesus Christ. Paul knows that only Jesus' holy life and his worthy sacrifice on the cross through his death, only that has the sturdiness to hold the weight of his sin. Thank goodness I don't have to solve my own problem. Thanks be to God. He solved it through Jesus Christ. If this is all new to you, he's inviting you to come to Jesus. But your mess, your evil, your junk at Jesus is saying, I can't deal with this. I know I'm guilty. Here you go, God. Jesus can stamp you not guilty. Not in a free, cheap way, but in a way through death. He died so that you can have eternal life. That was his sacrifice. He lived a perfect life so that it can be applied to you. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. We confess in tears, I am the problem. Jesus says back confidently, I am the solution. We say, but I failed to keep God's law. Jesus says, that's okay, I fulfilled it. That's our hope today. It is in Jesus. Now here's just two of many reasons why only Jesus can deliver you. Here's the first reason why only Jesus can deliver you. First, this is more objective. Only Christ's life was one beautiful righteous dance of obedience. Only Christ does that. Only Christ did that. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, the Spirit applies this to you. If you've already placed your faith and trust, uh, trust in Jesus, 
and you're still struggling with sin, know that you're never going to be able to dance this beautiful dance like Jesus did. That's okay. He can deliver you because he succeeded wholly at every point. I mentioned earlier I was playing cornhole at the men's retreat. You haven't played this game, or if you have, you, you know that the way scoring works is I've got a partner, but he's on the other side of the field here. And so when it's my round, I'm competing one-on-one -on -one versus my opponent here, right? So I remember as I was playing a game with guys there, I threw a round, and I scored some points, and then he threw a round, but it was better. So my score coming out of this round was negative two. <laughs> I don't like sports. Where when I'm done, my score is negative two. It doesn't feel good to me. And so I'm like, oh, great. I haven't done very well for my team. And then I look over there at my partner, who's better, more experienced than me. And he's going against another guy. I'm not going to name that guy yet. <laughs> They're throwing, and that guy throws, and my partner throws, and their score is my partner up by four. All right? So my partner wins by four, and I scored a negative two. Guess what happens? You put them together. You put his four over my negative two, and I end up standing in the plus two category. Ah, I love that game. His score was applied to me. I didn't do anything. And that's the beauty of Jesus. Jesus' obedience is applied to you. That's how only he can deliver you. He is perfect. Even when you fail, you swap your life with his righteousness. When you screw up, he has it fixed. You have to trust that. His perfect obedience is applied to you. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's another reason why only Jesus can deliver you. This is more anecdotal, okay? But it's true. You know all your own self-delivery attempts will fail. You know they will. Remember Paul's story. Remember how we got here in this chapter. Look at verse 10. Paul tells us in verse 10, he tried to be holy following God's word. Now maybe you're better than Paul. Maybe, maybe you're a better Christian than Paul. But I'm just telling you his story, right? He tried it. He tried so hard, and guess what he said? Ah, oh, this, is, this is beautiful and ugly at the same time. That's what he said. Every commandment in the Bible that promised life proved to be death to me. Oh, every time I tried to obey a really good commandment, I failed. Why? Because evil lies close at hand. Think back to when you were saved, Christian. You were not justified by your works, neither shall you be sanctified now by your works. Paul had to die to any notion of self-righteousness or effort earning before God. Listen now, he says, look back at verse 4. My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. What does that mean? Well, to die to the law is to admit that something good, like the law of Moses, can be corrupted by your own sin. You must put to death any notion that you can, by your own effort, make yourself more clean before God. It's never worked for you in the past. If it did, you wouldn't keep struggling with sin. Hello. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. 
you'd be done sinning if it made you clean. But you're still struggling with it. That means your own efforts will not work. But what does work? Look at verse 4. Keep going. Once you die to this idea of earning sinlessness before God, you do that so that you may belong to another. Oh, that's beautiful. This isn't about work. It's about belonging. To who? To him who has been raised from the dead. Why? In order that we might bear fruit. Or in other words, in order that we might win sometimes. We might defeat sin when he struts over and he wants to fight. We might win. We might bear fruit to God. But it's only by admitting victory is through belonging to Jesus. When you see sin in your life, you must confess it and tell God, this is not who I am. This is not who I am, God. I belong to Jesus and he has defeated this and I long for the day that I can be complete with him. Trust that God's spirit can change you and turn you and deliver you from this evil. Read one more quote from Professor Will Timmons. He, he sums it up like this really nice. He said, this means, this means that I never possess spiritual life as a quality or a property that I can claim as my own, as mine. Instead, by the Spirit, I participate in the life of the risen Christ. It's His Spirit that produces the fruit of Christ in me. That love that enabled me to show love to my neighbor this week, that was Christ working in me. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now at this point, I thought about offering a few how-to tips on overcoming your sin. I know they're helpful sometimes, but I'd rather not give you homework. I'd rather not give you work to do in a sermon about not working for your own sanctification. Instead, I want to give you three ways to rest in what Paul is saying to you today, okay? Three ways, briefly. First, some of you need to rest from trying to prove that you are better than others, okay? You're not better, but Christ is. You're not better, but Christ is. What do you mean by this? Well, I mean that when Paul teaches us that we have this sin mess in us, he leveled the playing field. All right? There's just something in you that makes you want to appear better than others. More in control, more together. I feel it. More holy than you. You struggle with things, but I got my act together. I'm in control here. We need to rest from that. I, I don't know how it expresses itself in your life. Maybe it's on social media. You want people to know that you are so much more caring than others. That you frame your Instagram posts like that. I, I don't know. Maybe you want people to think you're always joyful. So on days when you're not joyful, you struggle to come to church. You don't want people to see you in your dark moments. You don't like opening up about the reality that you've got some problems. Maybe it's when you parent, when you're around other parents, you speak to your kids a little bit differently. 
You're a little more stern because you want people to think, ah, I'm a disciplinarian. Or you're a little more gentle because you want people to think, ah, I'm not evil. We need to rest from these things. Maybe it's how you choose your clothes. If you choose your wardrobe or your meal plan in order to keep up some body image, you can rest from that. Because Jesus says, we all have sin in us. The message from God today is you can rest from that sick, sideways striving. The core of who we are is the same. We're made in God's image. We all struggle with sin. Corruption and wretchedness before God. But if you turn to him with faith, Christ smiles on you. It's the smile of his own father. You can rest from this competition. The Christian life would be a horrible competition thing about it. It'd really only be one guy who made it through the qualifying round. It's Jesus. That's not what the Christian life is. It's not a holiness competition. You can rest from that. Yes, pursue good works. Yes, pursue spiritual discipline. But not to show that you're better than someone else or more holy. Rest from that. Knowing that you are the problem and Jesus is the solution allows you to rest from that. Something else. Another way you can rest. Some of you need to rest from delivering your children from evil. You cannot deliver, but Jesus can. You cannot deliver, but Jesus can. What do you mean by that? Well, you find yourself beat down when your children don't live up to your expectations. Are you bewildered that all the catechism and the Bible memory you did with your two-year-olds didn't result in a three-year-old devoid of fits? Talk to, talk to a very honest parent two weeks ago. And they said just that. They said, look, I think we're parenting. I think we're trying. Why is my kid still throwing these fits? You're not the answer. You're not the deliverer. you got a sin problem. Only Jesus can fix that. What about your teenage kids or your grown-up kids? You feel guilty because they're far from spiritual giants? Rest. Rest from them. Are you ashamed that your child is the most disciplined kid, the worst behaving kid in homeschool to go up? It happens. Rest from trying to deliver them. You have an impulse to deliver your kids springs from God himself, but even that impulse is going to be corrupted. You must ask yourself, what's underneath the emotion that I have? Is it anxiety that I should have been able to prevent this failure in, in my child? Uh, is it anger? Man, I can't believe the rebellion against everything that I stand for. Is it impatience? Why do I have to tell this child the same thing over and over and over? in a 30-minute period? Is it impatience that's ruining you? Parents, you can rest today. God hasn't assigned you the job of delivering your child from evil. Remember the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus doesn't pray that to you. He does pray, God, lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. Why? Well, yours is the kingdom. 
power and the glory forever. We have to remember that. Let this doctrine of persistent sin in you remind you that you don't have the power. You don't have the kingdom. You don't have the glory forever, and that's a good thing. Only Jesus has it, so you can rest. So pray for your kids. Train them up in righteousness. Show them what it means to be raised in a house of grace. Let them read the Bible, but rest in the hope that only Jesus can change their hearts. Let your parents point to him and be empowered by them. Finally, some of you need to rest from stressing that you must fix society. Society is broken, but only Jesus will ultimately fix it. It was 16 years ago that I moved downtown. I was a younger man then with darker hair. Man, I love getting involved with everybody's life. Lots of broken structures here, broken lives. Had people living with me at my house all the time, stopping by, talking, praying. I remember going to a restaurant, getting an argument with the owner of the restaurant because of how he treated a homeless guy. Love this. Love making a difference here in downtown. And I think that's good work. I think we have made a difference. But society is no, no more fixed now. It's by, it's by no means settled because of what I've done the last 16 years. Some would say since 2016, it's gone bananas, right? Pandemic impact, immigration, cost of living, nobody's happy with Afghanistan. Even within our Christian culture, we still have challenges, racial injustices, faith deconstruction. Don't mention masks or vaccines. There's still things that are broken about our culture. The doctrine of man's sin says that we ultimately cannot fix it. But thanks be to God, who our Lord Jesus Christ, he one day will. He one day will. We should be striving to fight against evil in our culture. We should not be stressing every time we read a new headline. We skip to the end of the story in the book of Revelation. Wonderful scene of Jesus returning on a white horse, and he has fix it in his eyes. He's going to wipe away all that's bad. He's going to fix and repair everything that is broken. And he comes as the wonderful justice writer. And I praise God for that. And I say, come, let's do it. We need to trust in this. Yes, let's change culture, but let's rest from all the stress of bearing the burdens upon ourselves. Paul's message today to you is a very clear one here. It's very simple, and yet it's profound when you start to apply it. His message is, in his own personal testimony, his words, not mine, you're the problem, but Jesus has the solution from outside of you. This is a call. As you struggle with sin, to turn to Jesus and rest in him. If you've never met Jesus, come to him today. You talk to me after the service or anybody up here, we would love to introduce you to Jesus. But for now, let's pray, trusting in him. Let's pray together.
God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us just the attention to focus on it. And I pray, God, that you would show us our mess, but also show us how we are created in your image and that Jesus is our deliverer and we can rest in him. Whether we're parenting, oh God, whether we're struggling with our own image and sense of self, whether we're fighting the good wars of changing our culture, God help us to trust in you. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.